If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me uh, to the book of Hebrews. Let's go to chapter 10. We're going to begin our study, verse 19 through verse 25. Just a few short verses. But we want to look at this topic this morning. Your confession of faith. The word confession is your acknowledgement of. And we're speaking about our acknowledgement, our confession of faith. Our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you look at the word confession, it means an admission of sin, an acknowledgement of sin, the profession of belief in doctrines of particular faith. And our faith is Christianity. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is God, and that He died to give us life, life eternal. Now, when we look at the Scriptures, most of the uses of the word confession is speaking about confessing one's sin. Knowing that God knows our sin, we confess it. And we're to repent of that sin. I want to read to you a passage in the book of Joshua, chapter 7, verse 19. Now, let me set this up. Joshua and the Israeli army had gone into Ai, and they lost. They lost the victory at Ai, and it should have been an easy victory. They came back defeated, and then Joshua goes into the tent, and he cries out to the Lord, Why did we lose? We had just taken the big victory at Jericho. But God said, There's sin in the camp, Joshua. And lo and behold, the Lord showed him, and he went to Achan's house. They were basically tents. And he had taken from the spoils of Ai, and he brought them back to the tent. Now, family, I want you to listen to this. Husband, wife, listen. Achan told his family to leave the tent. And then he went back in, and he dug a hole, and he buried the treasures, the spoils that they took from Ai. The Bible says that they were judged. Achan, his wife, his children, and his parents. When we see sin come into our household, somebody needs to speak up. And so here in Joshua chapter 7, verse 19, Now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make a confession to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. He had buried the treasures. In Psalm 139, it tells us that God sees everything. You know, as a husband, you might hide from your wife. As a wife, you might hide from your husband. As, as children, I mean, how many times I hid things from my parents. But the Bible says that God sees all things. God knows all things. And so I've come to grips years back that if I sin, and I do, and you do, if God knows it, I need to confess it. I need to repent of it. And true repentance is a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of direction. Confession. And then once we, re we repent, then confession of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our confession of faith in God Almighty. Now another passage of scripture in the book of Ezra chapter 10 verse 11. Ezra comes to call the people to admit wrongdoing in marrying pagan women. And so Ezra 10.11 says, Make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do His will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the pagan wives. 
Now, they were marrying outside of Judaism. Now, God never said that we are not to marry outside of our, you know, ethnic background. That's not what he says. But we're not to marry outside of our belief system. If you're born again of the Holy Spirit, you should be praying that God would lead you and guide you to a spouse husband or wife that is also likewise born again of the Holy Spirit. A great example is King Solomon. King Solomon married foreign women. And before you know it, these foreign women were telling Solomon, build me a temple, build me an idol for my, my God. And so here in the time of Ezra, confess your sin of marrying these pagan women. Now we come to the New Testament. The New Testament uses the word confession to describe an open, a bold, and a courageous proclamation of one's faith. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, one of my favorite passages, Paul said, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes to righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So basically the Bible teaches those that call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. That's our confession of faith. And this morning as we teach on this subject, have we made the confession of faith? I look at our United States of America, the polls have been taken. And it's amazing to me that somewhere in the neighborhood, listen, somewhere in the neighborhood of 85 to 88 to 89 percent of our United States of America claim to be Christian. But the question is, are they born again of the Holy Spirit? Has there been change? Has there been transformation? We call ourselves Christian and then we continue in our sinful ways. The Bible says a liar or a drunkard will not get into the kingdom of God. And so there's a passage of scripture we're going to teach on your confession of faith, but I needed to set this up. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. This is a passage that I have struggled with for many, many years. If you have a caption in your Bible, in a study Bible, as I do, as you begin Matthew 7, verse 21, the caption of my Bible says, I never knew you. These are the words of Jesus. People that go to church, people that claim to be Christian, and yet God says, I never knew you. God forbid that we would spend 30 to 40 years in church service every Sunday or Saturday. I don't care what day of the week you decide to go to church, but are you born again to the Holy Spirit? Have you come to true repentance? Have you come to your confession of faith? Listen to what Jesus says here. And you'll understand why for years it's baffled me. But these are the words as Jesus speaks. And he begins here in verse 21, Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Verse 22. Many will say in, to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name? done many many miracle signs and wonders in your name and then in verse 23 and then i will declare to them i never knew you he says depart from me you who practice lawlessness you who practice sin 
You see, once we come to saving grace, God desires to change your life, to change my life. He begins to change our hearts. I know for years when we would go to church, we think that, you know, it's the outward man. I wouldn't dare go to church in Levi's. I wouldn't dream of going to church, you know, in cutoffs. I wouldn't, you know, even think. I grew up in the Catholic church. If you went to church with flip-flops on, somebody, a nun or a priest, would come up and slap you upside the head. That's just the culture I grew up in. And man, the guys had to have a nice shirt. You had to have nice slacks. You had to have shoes, tennis shoes. We never wore tennis shoes in church. And so we were always trying to accomplish the outward man or the outward woman. But God sees what's in the heart. God forbid that you have a three-piece suit on every Sunday and your hair looks just perfect and you got the right colognes on, but you don't know Jesus. You're not born again of the Holy Spirit. And so here he says, not all that say, Lord, Lord, are going to enter the kingdom of God. But Lord, I raised my hands at church. But Lord, I gave my finances when, uh, you know, the basket was passed. Lord, I prayed when the pastor prayed. I never knew you. You see, when we come to saving grace, when we make this confession of faith, God needs to see fruit in my life. I want you to write down a few verses. In Matthew chapter 15, John chapter 15, excuse me. In John chapter 15, the scripture says that he is going to see fruit in my life. He is the vine, we are the branches. And we need to come to that place of fruit in my life. Now, when you come to this word fruit, you say, well, what are you talking about? Does God want to see apples and oranges and bananas from me? No. He wants to see the fruit of the Spirit. And if you're taking notes in Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23, uh, Paul writes to the church at Galatia, and he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Verse 23, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. I love the fruit of the Spirit because the writer, which is Paul the Apostle, but we know it's the Holy Spirit, he's desiring to see fruit. Listen, singular. It's not the fruits of the Spirit, plural, but it begins with the first fruit, and that is love. Agapeo love. Agape love can only be given to you or to me through Christ Jesus. If, to describe agape love is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so we look at the cross. And we look at the love of Jesus. What saved you? What saved me? But it's the love of Christ. What is my desire now is to proclaim this same love to others. This unconditional love. This love, the, the best way to describe agape is love that's always giving and never wanting anything in return. Remember, Jesus prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. If there be any other way, take this cup of death from me. But if not, let not my will be done, but let your will be done. Jesus did not want to die on the cross. He was all man. He was all God. He was going to feel every ounce of punishment on the cross. Isaiah chapter 53 shows us how much he suffered greatly to give us life. 
life eternal. In return, we're to make this confession of faith. And as I make this confession of faith, he wants to see fruit in my life. The fruit of the Spirit begins with love. And then you will see the rest of the fruit just fall into place, church. Now let's go to our text this morning. I want to read through. I'm going to say a short prayer. Ask the Lord to give us understanding. Then I'm going to go back up and make some commentary. So Hebrews chapter, chapter 10, excuse me, look at verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us uh, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Now this house of God is the church. It's the body of Christ. In verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast that confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves, he says, together as in manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. That day approaching is the second coming of Christ. But let's pray. Father, as we prepare to look at your word, this confession of faith, this acknowledgement of faith, our faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to understand what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to the church. Lord, as the, the writer was bringing forth to the Hebrew Christians that were struggling in their walk. And Lord, we know uh, historically that within two to four years after the writing of the book of Hebrews, Titus and the Roman army would come into Jerusalem in 70 AD and level the city, level the temple, and the Jews would be scattered. Even till this day, they have no temple. And so, Father, cause us to understand that our confession of faith is in Jesus Christ and nothing else. And if we have confessed our sin to Christ, Lord, change us. Lord, transform us. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, if a man or a woman is in Christ, we are a new creation. Change us, Lord. Speak to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now back to Hebrews 10. Look at verse 19 again, and we'll begin to make commentary. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, church, because Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again, and then we know after 40 days, he ascends into heaven. And currently, he sits at the right hand of God. The Bible says he makes intercession for me, for you, that Jesus prays for me. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 34, he prays for me, he prays for you. And if we've come to that place of the confession of faith, because Jesus has paved the way, we have this boldness. As the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we have this boldness. The word boldness speaks about assurance, speaks about confidence, speaks about faith. 
I can enter the Holy of Holies now because Jesus paid the full price with his precious blood once and for all. You see, in the Old Testament, we've been studying this in the book of Hebrews. In the Old Testament, we have to have the animal sacrifices. Well, now because Jesus has become the complete sacrifice, no more animal sacrifices are needed. No more high priest is needed. No more waiting for that one day of atonement, which was called Yom Kippur. And here's the key that we need to understand. We don't need a priest. We don't need a pastor. We don't need to wait to go to church on Saturday, if that's what you choose. We don't need to wait to go to church on Sunday, if that's what you choose. The day that we choose to go to worship. We have the boldness, and this is the boldness we have of our faith, to enter the presence of God because of the work at the cross done for us through Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Now imagine if we were still in the Old Testament. The high priest only dared to enter the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, the Day of Yom Kippur. And after that, he had made sacrifices and much blood was shed. The priest would go in, the high priest would go into the holy place. It was a 15-foot cube. And as he went in, he would take the blood of the lamb and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. The Shekinah glory of God would come. That's what would illuminate that room. And this high priest had to get ready to go in there. If you go back to the book of Exodus, you would see the garments that he wore. I mean, the, gar the garments were beautiful. Then he had this breastplate of righteousness. He had the 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes. And in the fringes of the bottom of his, of his robe, his gown, were these pomegranate bells. And they would chime as he moved, as he was doing his worship, his service to God. Tradition tells us they used to take a rope and tie it around one of his ankles. Because as he went into the holies of holies, once a year, the Shekinah glory of God was there. And that priest, if there was any sin in his life, he would be struck dead on the spot. The purpose of the rope, you couldn't go in there. You had to drag him out. And then they would put a next high priest. I always wondered about that next high priest. Oh, before I go in, I'm confessing everything. Because we could not stand before a righteous God. Well, that's all eliminated now. When Jesus dies on the cross, he gives up the ghost, and he says, it is finished. Remember that the curtain rent in two? Made it access now that we can come into the, the Holy of Holies with boldness. And I hope you don't wait till Saturday morning if that's when you go to church or, or Sunday morning, that's when you go to church. But we have access every day. We can enter the Holy of Holies because Jesus has paved the way. Because we've made that confession of faith. Now he's going to take it further. Uh, look at verse 20 now. And he explains this new sacrifice, this new flesh sacrifice, which was Christ. By a new and living way, he says, which he consecrated or dedicated for me, for you, for us, through the veil, that is his flesh. Now, from time to time, I like to give you different translations. I might go to the NIV because the translation fit uh, the passage. I might go to the New Living Translation. Sometimes their passage is just excellent. There's a translation that I support and I love. 
It's called the Amplified Bible. The Amplified Bible is exactly what it means. It amplifies what we just read. I want you to hear it with me. The Amplified Bible says, verse 20, By this flesh, the new sacrifice and living way, which he initiated and dedicated and opened for us through the separation of the curtain. This curtain is the veil of the Holy of Holies. Now this Holy of Holies was a cube, 15 foot square. In front of that cube was this curtain, this veil. It would have been 15, 15, 15. In the book of Exodus, it tells us that it was a cubit in thickness. The cubit is from the tip of your finger, index finger, to your elbow, about 18 inches. That's a pretty thick curtain. The Bible says that uh, it was interwoven with gold. In fact, tradition tells us, historically tells us, Josephus writes that they had to have several priests that would pull the curtain back in order for the high priest to go in because it was very heavy. When Jesus died on the cross and he gives up the ghost and he's stretched out arms, he says, he looks up into heaven, it is finished. The Greek word is totalistoi. It is complete. It is a done deal once and for all. Then the curtain rent in two. Imagine this curtain that would have been 18 inches thick. Now, it's interesting. You look at the scriptures in the Gospels, and it says that it rent from the top to the bottom. That shows us that God did it. And that man would have done it from the bottom up. Tradition tells us once this was over and they regrouped, the Israelites that were the Sanhedrin, the 71 elect, they went back and sewed the curtain up because they wanted to continue that. But in 70 AD, it was going to be wiped out anyway. So he goes on in the Amplified Bible. He says, and the separating of the veil or the curtain, the veil of the Holy of Holies, that is through his flesh. Jesus dies on the cross to give us life. He paid the full price. Jesus is this new sacrifice. In the Old Testament, I want you to think of this. When one would have the sacrifices made for him or her, at the moment that the sacrifice was made for you, you felt cleansed, cleansed because it happened that day. But imagine once you left the temple, you'd fall back into sin. Then you had to wait again for the next time that they would make a sacrifice. I was thinking of this whole concept. Most of you knew that I grew up in the Catholic church. I went through the Catholic school system. And communion was very, very important to me because we believe strongly, transubstantiation, that that became the actual body and blood of Christ at the time of the communion service. So when we partook of communion, I felt as a boy, 10, 12 years old, that I was in the presence of holiness and that Jesus was inside of me. And I used to pray. Lord, this would be the perfect day for me to die because I felt holy. I felt the presence of God. But once I left the church, I would go back to my friends, I'd go back to the neighborhood, and you'd get back into sin. And you say, Lord, don't kill me now. Well, this is exactly what happened uh, 
in the time of the Old Testament. You felt a cleansing. But then you would get back to normality and you get back into your sin nature. And you see, we find, as we've been studying the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is my mediator. I must go through the cross to get to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father but through me. Jesus becomes the bridge builder. Jesus becomes my advocate, my lawyer for my defense. I must put on righteousness, listen, by this confession of faith. Now, Jesus does forgive us, and he does cleanse us. And we have this access to the Holy of Holies now because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Hmm. I am a sinner, you're a sinner, but because of the born-again experience, I am washed once and for all in the blood of Christ. And when I sin and I do sin, I go to the Father through Christ. Forgive me. And the Bible says that I am forgiven. Verse 21, he continues. And having a high priest, now which is Christ, over the house of God. You see, we've been studying in the book of Hebrews what took place in the Old Testament. I don't need Aaron. He was the first high priest. I don't need Annas, which was the high priest during the time of the New Testament. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was also a high priest. I don't need any more high priest because Jesus is my personal high priest over the house of God. The house of God is the church here on earth because Jesus paid the full price. At Calvary, he paid the full price. We're the church. We're the body of Christ. Yes, we come into Calvary Chapel. We come into the building and we partake of the church service. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul the writer, through the Holy Spirit, listen to what he says, know you not now that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I tell you what, that blows your mind that God desires to tabernacle within you, within me. And that's why, you know, I don't just play church on Sunday morning. When I leave, the Holy Spirit leaves with me. Jesus leaves with me. He tabernacles within me. He tabernacles within you if I'm born again of the Holy Spirit. And so it doesn't matter if I go to church Saturday or if I go to church on Sunday. But because I've received Christ, He's in me. He's in you 24-7. And that's why not just here at church I say, God bless you. Good morning. How are you? You know, we act Christian. We know how to do it. But how do I act outside of the walls of the church here, the church building? How do I act tomorrow at work? How do I act tomorrow at school? How do I act this afternoon at home? If we've truly made a confession of faith, Jesus is my high priest over the house of God forever. Now, I want to take it just a little bit further. Go back with me now. Hebrews chapter 4, look at verse 14. It's important that we, you know, minister to our hearts what the Word of God has to say. Having a high priest over the house of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, look at verse 14. 
That is why we have a great high priest who has gone to heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us cling to him and never stop trusting in him. Verse 15, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. He says, for he faced all of the same temptations we do, yet he did not sin. You see, we are sinners saved by grace. Jesus was all God, all man, but he was sinless. He was sinless. In Matthew chapter 4 are the three temptations of Christ. Satan came to test him. And every time he was tested, Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. He went back to the word of God. Now look at verse 16. Again, Hebrews chapter 4. So let us come, he says boldly, to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it. When we need it. You see, I don't need animal sacrifice. I don't need the blood of bulls and lambs and goats, sheep, turtle doves. Because the blood of Christ is what sustains me. That beautiful passage again in John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus gives up the ghost, he says, it is finished. To tell a story. It is a done deal. Church, I think sometimes we need to just kind of reflect on that. Yes, Jesus died 2,000 years ago. He died to give me life, to give you life, life eternal. And we need to reflect on that. We need to meditate upon that, that he died to give me life. Personalize it. He, he died to give you life. And that is life eternal. You know, uh, we live in our society today. And as you're getting older, you know, the commercials come out. And boy, they've got everything for anything. I mean, you want to fix the crow's feet here in the side of the eyes, they have stuff for you. You want to pull this up and pull that back, they have it for you. You got the money, they'll do cosmetic surgery on you. But when you die, it's all going to fall anyway. You know, I mean, think about it. We're trying to take care of this flesh. And, and I'm in agreement. We have to take care of it to a certain extent. But those of us that never wore glasses, now you have to wear them. Or else you'll be like Mr. Magoo. You can't see nothing. Well, one day we're going to receive a new body. One day we will have that new body. Because I cannot enter heaven, neither can you, with this body. I need transformation. I need to be changed. So now we've come to this place. We're going to come to the conclusion here. And these last verses, listen. I've come to this confession of faith. I acknowledge that it's not the blood of the animals. I acknowledge that it's not the, the high priest in the Old Testament. I acknowledge it's not the high priest during the New Testament, Caiaphas or Annas. But I acknowledge now, I confess that my complete high priest is Jesus Christ. And I've accepted him. I am born again of the Holy Spirit. God is moving in my life and in your life. Then he goes into these three statements. In verse 22, let us draw near. In verse 20, 20, 23 now, let us hold fast. And then finally in verse 24, let us consider. And so here's the project for us. Let us. 
He's talking to the church now. Let us, he begins here, draw near. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 22 begins these little phrases, let us. Because of Jesus Christ and the finished work at the cross, we have the full assurance that we can draw near. Listen, let us draw near. Let it begin to worship him with a true heart. That's why we came into church this morning. First of all, as we prayed, as Wallace begins to take us through worship, it is vital. It is very important. Worship is vital to the body of Christ. Worship is important to God. We should come in with hearts of worship. Notice that he says here, uh, to worship him with a true heart. Listen to the translation. With an honest heart, a sincere heart. A heart of worship. A heart that has been sprinkled from evil, a conscience. The guilt of sin has been washed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The word conscience is that guilt trip. When you did that sin nature, whatever it was, there is a guilt trip. And as that guilt trip gets heavier and heavier, you have to realize and recognize that you need to get rid of that guilt trip. And the only way you can do it is through Christ. I give him everything. Lord, you know what I've done. Again, Psalm 139, he knows it. Give your sins to God. Notice, sprinkle from evil conscience, that guilt of sin has been washed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and we are cleansed daily, listen, by the washing of the Word of God. And the washing of the Word of God. In the book of Ephesians, instructions that are given to the husbands, as we are to nurture our wife, our bride, we're to pray with her, we're to study the Word of God with her. That's one of the positions of the prophet, priest, and the king of the home. It's our responsibility, men. And so as we've come to this confession of faith, we are born again to the Holy Spirit. We've been bathed in Christ now. And yet every day we're going to sin. And we come to him and he washes us with the word. How many times you've come to church on Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, or you open your scriptures yourself, having your time of devotion, and it's the Word of God that just washes you. It's the Word of God that just cleanses you. Or you're born again of the Holy Spirit. And I hope and pray we start every morning with the Word of God. Watch what God is going to do in my life and in your life because we're Christian now. We've made that confession of faith. I want to take it a step further for verse 22. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 6. I want to begin here in verse 35. Now, Jesus is teaching his disciples, followers of Christ. He was often preparing them that he was going to die, and they didn't understand. Even after he died, they still didn't understand. It wasn't until the book of Acts, chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls upon them that they understood. But I like the caption in my Bible. If you have a study Bible, in John chapter 6, verse 35, it says, His disciples, Jesus teaches His disciples, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that has come from heaven. 
And so he begins in verse 35, John chapter 6. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Then he takes it further. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, he wasn't speaking of physical hunger, physical thirst. He's speaking about spirituality here. But I said to you, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Imagine those that saw Jesus for a three and a half year span, and they did not believe. Then he goes on, verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast him out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. I like that Jesus, listen, he came to do the will of his father. Do I come to church to seek to do the will of my heavenly father? Do I read the word of God? Do I seek to do his will? Not my will, but your will be done. As Jesus said to his father. You see, in verse 37, we just read that. Here lies my assurance, your assurance, by faith. He's not going to cast any one of us out that have come to him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see, salvation is a universal call. But we know that not everybody comes to saving grace. But it's there for each one of us. All we have to do is respond. Now he goes on. Verse 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. Jesus one day will take us home. Oh, we're going to go through our trials, our tribulations, our hardship, and our pain. We have a dear saint that comes to the first service, and she has a deteriorating spine. I mean, she knows it. She's had surgeries. The doctors say there's nothing uh, they can do for her. And I love when I see her in church uh, on Sunday and on Wednesday. But when she's not here, I know she's in pain. I see her husband and she's not with him. She's in pain. But one day God will give her a glorified body that can go into heaven. But in the meantime, she's a Christian. We have another gentleman. He has cancer. Unless the Lord heals him, he's going to go home to be with the Lord. And and these are struggles. You see this and you say, but Lord, they're, they're Christian. The Bible says it rains in the just and the unjust. Paul the apostle was one that went through so many trials. We're going to go through trials. We have our assurance of salvation. We have our assurance of our faith in Christ. But that doesn't mean we don't go through trials. One day he's going to take us home. Notice verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. That's eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Imagine one day that Jesus is going to take us home. He tells us in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. But one day he's going to take us home. Now, here in John chapter 6, I I didn't read verse 31, but in the Old Testament, God provided manna from heaven. And here he's telling them that he is the bread of life now. Now, remember in the great Exodus, 
for a 40-year span in the wilderness, God provided for them. The Old Testament tells us that they never wore out their clothing nor their sandals. And that God provided manna every day. You would wake up in the morning, there'd be this substance on the floor. It was called manna from heaven. And the women would go gather the manna, then they'd make manna burgers, manna cotti, and all the different manna dishes that were available. But it sustained them. The word manna in the Hebrew, listen to this, God's humor. What is it? That's what, would you go get some, what is it? It's out there on the floor. That's what it was. God provided. Then he provides water from a rock. The rock is Christ. And remember when they cried out, we're tired of manna. We want meat. God sends them quail. Enough quail that it came out of their nostrils. God continued. He is Jehovah Jireh from Genesis chapter 22. God, our provider. God provides for us. You see, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the desert, but I am the bread of life. For the last 2,000 years, Jesus has been this bread of life, our substance. Jesus is what sustains us. Now, the Bible teaches us that there's this guilt complex, there's guilt conscience, that he rids us, we see it uh, here in verse 22, but he rids this guilt trip. The enemy's going to guilt you of your sin nature. He'll take you back to, you know, the years. But I want you to remember this, church. In Romans 8, 1, there is, though, there is therefore now no more condemnation. The word is judgment to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Oh, I know I'm a sinful man. You know you're a sinful person, but I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb. I'm washed in the purity of the water, the Word of God. And I've made this confession of faith. One more verse to just kind of sew up verse 22. In 1 John, write it down. I want to read it to you. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. John writes, If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship, koinonia, with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us from all sin. All of this, church, because I have made, you have made, a true confession of faith. Now here in verse 22 again, let us draw near with a true heart. Look at verse 23 now. Let us hold fast. So he throws some responsibility in our camp now. I've made this uh, true confession of faith in Christ. Let us draw near with a true heart. Now in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised, he is faithful. He is faithful. The Greek is telling us, keep in memory the confession, this acknowledgement of our personal hope, this faith in Christ. Listen, without wavering. The word to waver, without bending, without staggering. And I know he's bringing this forth to the Hebrew Christian because back in Hebrews chapter 2, the Hebrew Christians were in danger of slipping away. 
in danger of backsliding. You see, because we and the Hebrew Christians have trusted God through Jesus Christ, we have these promises of faith. And we need to say amen to that. We have these promises of faith. No matter how much the enemy tries to rattle my cage. And so let us consider. Let us hold fast now to this proclamation of faith. This new covenant. This new promise. This new covenant depends on the promise of God. Not our works or the works of the law. God's promises are sure. There's a lot of promises out there. We were in an election year, and all the candidates, all of them, it doesn't matter. I'm not here to challenge, you know, what party you belong to. That's not the issue. But promises are always made. You go to buy a car, they make you promises. You go to the bank for a loan, they make you promises. I mean, everybody makes promises. You vote for me, and I promise. I mean, that, that's just the issue, and, and we buy into it. But I tell you what, the promises of God, man, they are sure. The promises of God, you can take them to the bank. I mean, I've had a lot of promises given to me. You've had a lot of promises given to you. I mean, all kinds of avenues. But the only true promise is what's been given to me by God through His Son, Jesus Christ. If I truly make this confession of faith... I have this promise, listen, of eternal life. Eternal life. Now, Wycliffe, in his translation, in his commentary, verse 23, I want you to listen to it. An unwavering confession of faith in the living Christ, God undergirds our hope by his own promises, for he is faithful who promised. This then speaks of further affirmation based upon faith in the faithfulness of God. Acknowledging who he is. You see, even you and I are sometimes faithless. You and I are like doubting Thomas. We doubt. But God is faithful. And I thank the Lord. I thank the Lord. Now we come to verse 24. And this last statement of let us. Now, we just looked at verse 22. Let us draw near unto God with a true heart. In verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Look at verse 24. Let us consider. Isn't that neat that we come to this place of saving grace and now it's thrown into my ballpark and we, you, myself, we're, if we're Christian, we're to consider others? Be careful that we don't hoard what God's given to us. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Because he, Jesus Christ, is faithful to me, he's faithful to you, we need to be faithful, listen, to others. It is so important that Christians take thought and care for one another. And the Bible does tell us to exhort each other to good works. Now, be careful with the word exhortation. Because when I heard that years ago... It, this is what we think of. I'm going to exhort you. I get my index finger and I point it to you and then I start shaking it in your face and telling you, you should not be doing. That's not what the word exhort translates out. 
The word to exhort somebody, listen, comfort them, encourage them, console them. Oh, the worst thing a Christian can do to another Christian is you're a rotten sinner and we slam them to the floor. Where's the love? Where's the compassion? Where's the grace? Listen, when I blow it and you blow it, and we do, God is compassionate with me. God is compassionate with you. I shared this story years ago. I was about 16 years old. I went to the confessional at St. Joseph's Catholic Church, and I was going to, you know, confess my sins. And I went up to the Father, going to the little box. He opens the little drawer. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been so long since my last confession. And I start my confession. Well, I get to a certain part. I, you know, when you had a bad sin, you keep it to the end. And so I finally confess it. He starts yelling at me. I never had that happen. You shouldn't be doing that, blah, blah. I, I know that's why I'm confessing it. I'm sorry. He's yelling at me. Well, something happened that day. When I came out of the confessional, everybody's staring at you. It's Bob. It's just natural. From that point on, I never told the priest everything. I would tell him what he needed to hear, and then I would go to the altar and give the rest to God. God never yells at me. He loves me. He wants to forgive me. I tell you, I don't know if any of you have ever, in the Catholic Church, you usually go into the box, right? But in some cases, Mary and I were talking about this, my wife, and she says, you ever confess face-to-face with a priest? I go, no. I'd have to go like this because we're not going to tell them everything. It's hard. But you see, again, Psalm 139, God knows all my sins. God knows all your sins. And so we give them to the Lord. We are to care, consider one another. Because I have this assurance in my confession of faith in Jesus Christ, my desire is not to hoard it for me, for myself, for I, and forget others. We should have compassion. Compassion for others. And church, look around us. Especially when you go to school, you go to work, you go to your own family sometimes. I mean, we can see it. You go to a restaurant. Look around. You see the hurt and the pain in people. I'll tell you. We should have compassion. I care for their souls. You should care for their souls. I want you to listen to this beautiful passage. We've been studying the promise of the Holy Spirit on Wednesday nights. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be a witness, listen, to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. We're to have compassion, first of all, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem always represents where I live, where you live. So Las Cruces, New Mexico, becomes our Jerusalem. But let's take it a little step further. We should be concerned with our family members. When Mary and I came home, we we were saved on the same day. We began to think about our own children. They were small. Then we began to think of mom and dad, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, cousins, 
And even to this day, we have family members that are not saved. If God has saved you, you should be concerned for others, the needs for others. You shall be witnesses to me, Jesus said, in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. We're to consider one another. The word to consider that he uses here in, in verse 24 is to observe others, to pre perceive others, to discover others, and to behold others. In other words, I can see the pain. I can see the hurt. And there's people out there that are hurting in our great United States of America. I want you to turn to this psalm. Psalm 41. The psalmist here speaks about considering the poor. And let me tell you something. The scriptures speak plenty about caring for the poor. In fact, the caption in my Bible in Psalm 41, it's a, it's a psalm of King David, and he speaks about the blessings and sufferings of the godly. He begins in verse 1, Psalm 41. Blessed is he who considers the poor, the Lord will deliver him in a time of trouble. Yes, the poor are many. We know that. And they're out there. But have we considered the poor? Mary and I live off Doña Anna off-ramp there uh, going towards uh, Leesburg. It's the last off-ramp. And we get off there and then we'll go in Either that or we'll go through Delray, but they're doing a lot of construction. So oftentimes I go home and I get off on Doniana off ramp. There's a, a gentleman that was begging for alms there almost every day. And then a buddy of his. And, you know, the same thing. They're looking for coin. And as soon as they get enough, then they go to the little liquor store there and get what they need. And a lot of times we give them the quarter to get them out of our face. Well, we just read in the newspaper that one of those panhandlers been doing it for years. They found him behind the Circle K, dead. And it convicted me. Oh, you give him a quarter from time to time, but basically to get him out of your window or to get the guilt trip away because he's looking at you. But did I share with him? Did I ask him, could I pray for you? Oh, we're too busy. We're, we're, we're in a hurry. Have we considered the poor? Blessed is he who considers the poor. Look at verse 2. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive. Speaking of the poor. And he will be blessed on the earth. You will not consider him uh, to the will of his enemies. Consider the poor. And yes, there's a lot of charlatans out there. Uh, there's a lot of uh, liars and cheats out there. I mean, I know how many times I've asked somebody that says work for food. I tell them, come, I got some weeds at the house. Oh, you know, I can't go right now. I mean, they'll make all the excuses. They want the money. But have you considered there's, you know, people out there that are poor. Uh, look at verse 3, the conclusion here. The Lord will strengthen him, speaking of the poor, on his bed of illness. You will sustain him. On his sick bed. So he says here in verse 24, let us consider one another. So imagine bringing a bag of groceries to somebody that's in need, giving a couple of bucks 
to somebody that's in need. To help pay for a light bill or a gas bill. To somebody that's truly in need. Hmm. Now I'm going to just share this from my heart. In our church, we have two services. I know pretty much everybody that comes, unless they're new to the church. Pastor Jeff will tell me about this person or that person. Pastor Jay will share this. In our church, we have people that are poor. Oh, they don't come right out and say it. But we find out, we hear, and have we considered uh, the poor. They're in our midst. And usually the ones in the church won't say nothing. They're not the ones with the sign. They're not the ones that are saying, I'll work for food. They're just humble. But consider, ask the Lord to show you. And you can be inconspicuous. There's ways to, you know, take care. I've had people come up to me, come up to Pastor Jeff, say, here's a couple of bucks. Would you give it to so-and-so? Don't tell them nothing. Oh, that's a blessing. That's a blessing. That's what he's saying here. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Now he comes to the conclusion, verse 25. And remember, he's writing this letter to the Hebrew Christians. And some of them were leaving that place of going to temple and studying the word of God. And if 70 AD was only two to four years away, they were going to lose everything. But we're seeing it today. I know people that are saying, well, I don't need to go to church. I, I'll stay home and, and I'll get the electronic church. I'll stay home, I can get the satellite church. I know there's a lot of the big Calvaries I can get on the internet. I can pick up a radio station on Sunday morning. Yes, that's true. And if you're sick that day, you're not feeling well, that's fine. But when you make that your church... That's air. Notice what the writer says. In verse 25, the conclusion, we've made that confession of faith now, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as it is in the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching, especially because we know Jesus is coming soon. Again, I like to go to different translations. Uh, the New Living Translation just says it exactly what it means. Verse 25. Let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage, that's that word, exhort, and warn each other, especially now that the day of His coming back again is drawing near. I believe strongly in my heart that we must go to church belong to a church body the electronic church is good if you're sick and you can't get to church but I believe that we need to be part of a church we need to be part of a church that gets together prays teaches the word of God we need to be part of a church where we can give give of our finances give of our time and it's not going to be done if you're at home. And I'll tell you what, I've done the electronic church, and you put it on, and they start preaching, and you go make a burrito. They're preaching and teaching away, you go get a cup of coffee. 
And so we're distracted. We need the word of God. We need to come humbly and to receive the word of God. Now, why do we come to church? Why do we encourage others to go to church? He takes this route at the bottom of the verse. Get and stay together because the day of the Lord is approaching. The second coming of Jesus Christ will come when we least expect it. He will come like a thief in the night. And the Bible teaches us, listen to this, there's over 300 verses, prophecies that is, concerning the second coming of Christ. Now we know that the first coming of Christ has already taken place. But the second advent of Christ is going to take place. Now in order for Jesus to return, I believe first that the rapture of the church will take place. And then a seven years of tribulation will begin. And according to the book of Revelation, the last three and a half years is called the Great Tribulation. Study Matthew chapter 24. But we need to know that Jesus is coming. If he came in his first advent, he's going to come again. He's going to come again. And if we know this, how much more we need to tell others. Listen, we need to get together, pray, seek God's will, learn more about him to share with others. We made this confession of faith. Let's not hoard what we have. I want to see others in the kingdom of God. And I believe that there will be a great revival before Jesus comes for the rapture of the church. And then all hell is going to break loose after the church is taken out. And I believe that our country, our great country, is going to be judged. That's just why today is the day of our salvation. Let's all stand. We'll end with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord. We give you praise and honor and glory and worship. Lord, we're so grateful that we can come and make this confession of faith. This acknowledgement of faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we did in the first service, we'll do it in the second service also. I know most of you, but there's a lot of you that I don't know. And I don't know where your walk is with Christ. And I want to give you that opportunity. With every eye closed, every head bowed, I want to ask you this question. Has the Holy Spirit spoken to you already? That you need to come to that place of salvation. Only the Holy Spirit could prompt your heart. But I can ask you. And it's your place to respond. So with every eye closed, every head bowed. I'd like to ask you. Would you like to receive Christ this morning? It's a simple prayer of faith. Right there where you're at. I'm not going to ask you to come up. But right there where you're at in your own chair. If you'd like to receive Jesus As your Lord and Savior, would you raise your hand and I'll pray for you. Anybody before we close the service. I'd like to give that opportunity. Anybody. Praise the Lord that if we're all Christians, let's give God the glory. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that these, your servants, have committed their lives already to you, Lord. And now, Lord, let us consider others. Lord, speak to our hearts. Minister to our hearts. Baptize us in the power of your Holy Spirit that we would just bring forth fruit. Fruit that honors you, Lord. 
Bless your beautiful people as they've come this morning. And Lord, encourage our hearts. Bless the offerings, Lord, as you've given to us. We give back a portion. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. And we all agree by saying amen.